Welcome to the Fellowship College Podcast. It's been a minute. Well, after a spring break sabbatical, we are back in the podcast booth coming at you with another spicy passage. It's going to be it's going to be a good one today. This one might ruffle a few feathers, but we're kind of we're kind of feeling a little reckless in here today. Is that is that a good thing to be feeling in the podcast booth or bad? Should you feel like a little little reckless, a little on edge? Oh yeah. I think some of the best things come out of recklessness. No, you gotta be a little contrarian. You gotta ruffle those feathers. Do you think God's love was reckless? <laughs> Good no. question. Joanna? Oh wait, I'm sorry. She, she's not here. <laughs> Joanna is still on sabbatical. So yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Sabbatical rest. That may have been spring break for you, but Jacob and I were out here working. Hey, so. we were both in <laughs> desert like places. So we basically one just had golf courses. <laughs> And one had refugees. And so we are, but we're back in Northwest Arkansas, wherever we were on our sabbatical, we're here now. And so the question we keep getting over and over again, people want us to start writing our own books because I mean, we have dozens of listeners that are just wanting more content from us. And so half of them is my, my family and extended family. And they're like, y'all should write a book. And so if you could write, any book, Christian or non-Christian, what would that book be about? Um, I'm really glad that people are asking you to write books, Josh. Um, yeah, really happy for you. Uh, if I were to write a book, <laughs> it would be on something involving apologetics and the way that we share the gospel with people in America because I think we have a lot to learn from ways that we have messed up in the past in sharing the gospel. And... Um, that's just something I'm very passionate about in um, just the way that we care for people and our heart posture, because I think we just, as the Western American church, have a lot of layers of um, just culture and all of that on top of our Christianity that has kind of calloused us in talking to other people. I have the perfect title for your book. It just came to me oh, in, what is me. It? in a vision. So it's like you're saying kind of, uh, addressing the way we've done apologetics poorly in the yeah. past, correct? Yeah. Call it apologetic po- apology. Oh my goodness. I wonder if there's a book <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Right? That's pretty good. <laughs> it came to me. That's really fun. You, we've never talked about this before. We have so never really talked about it. This literally you. happened on the spot. Yes. Apologetic apology. Yeah, that was good. Wow. I think you should write that book. Yeah. That I would be a great book. I would totally I also think you would write good books. I would totally read that oh book. My goodness, yeah, guys. That book. You're also much... Um, more selfless than I, because the first thought I had was writing a book was, okay, how could I write a book that would go down as like legendary, you know, like Moby Dick and, you know. Yeah, we don't care about helping people. Odyssey. We just want to be famous. I'm like, it would be a fiction, great fiction novel that, you know, 200 years later in English classes, they would be reading. I don't know what it would be about, but that's the type of book I want to hey, write. Hey, that's great. That's, that is good. My, mine would be, I've actually thought about this for a little, a little while. I probably won't ever write a book, just spoiler alert for y'all out there. Uh, but a book, I'm sure there's plenty of books out there already, but a, an entire book about what it means to be in Christ 
Mm-hmm. It's the phrase that we just see over and over and over again in the New Testament. And I think it is so deep, so rich. I think our entire Christian life revolves around this two-word phrase, in Christ. And if we actually understood what that what that meant and the implications of being in Christ, I think it would be life-changing. Shoot. So, you should do it. I'm sure that book's already out there. So <laughs> maybe send it to me if you... I think every book ever is already out there. So we can just make them, you know, better, put our own spins on them. Yeah. Mm. You guys should both write those. I don't know if I write mine, but y'all should both R- write, write yours. Moby Dick 2. <laughs> the Moby sequel. Dick part two. <laughs> um, I actually read this book, and this is going to tie into what we're talking about today. It's on my nightstand. It's called Humble Calvinism. And it was actually really, really good because we're going to be talking about Calvinism today. We're going to be talking about the perseverance of the saints and it was from this guy i can't remember who it was like jd greer or something like that definitely an outspoken calvinist but he wanted to address the problems that he's seen with other calvinists specifically how he's seen uh calvinists use this tulip or any of those doctrines of grace as a weapon instead of as what they should be which is just like should cause these doctrines of grace should cause a lot of humility and, and grace and mercy, especially among other people. And he's like, man, the church, especially in the West has used Calvinism as, as a weapon and as a source of pride. And so he starts the book with this great story. It's a made up story. He says, imagine you're in heaven and Jesus is is showing you around, showing you these rooms, and you kind of you walk past this one like huge, like large door that that's open, and you see like a bunch of people like worshiping and singing really loud and praying over one another and talking and and like dancing and celebrating. And you're like, Jesus, what what's going on in there? And Jesus looks at you and says, Oh, those are my charismatic friends. And it's like, Oh, wow, that's that's fun. That's awesome. And you're going, you're walking. And in the next room, there's this huge library and people are, are studying and people are, are, have their Bibles open and, and are reading and they're just weeping at the knowledge that they're, that they're learning and experiencing. And you're like, Jesus, what's going on in there? That's amazing. And Jesus says that like, those are my evangelical, like Protestant friends. And I was like, Whoa, that's, that's really cool. And then you see Jesus go to this third door that's actually closed. And he kind of gives you like the sign, like the finger over his mouth, like the shh, like be quiet. And he he starts tiptoeing past this door. And so you kind of follow him. You do the same thing. You're tiptoeing past this this door. And when you kind of get far enough out of earshot, you go, Jesus, like what? What was in that room? What what was going on in there? And he looks at you, he goes, those are my Calvinist friends. And they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil their fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so he gives that. That's like literally the intro to this book. Uh, and I was like, okay, I've got to read this book. That's funny. That's a good intro. And he's talking about, he is a Calvinist talking about, hey, here's what I, I do believe, but we have to handle these doctrines with humility. And if we don't, we probably don't actually understand any of these doctrines. And so Today I'm not going to tell you where we're gonna where we're gonna land when it comes to the the perseverance of the saints, but I want I want us to handle this with humility, whether whether we land on one side or the other side. And so 
when we talk about Calvinism, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so you're bringing up Calvinism. Some of our listeners might not know what that is. So can you do a, like a 30 second description of what that means and then how that leads into our topic today? Well, John Calvin actually has this, he's one of like the church fathers. Uh, he has this uh, specifically during like the reformation he has this giant book called the institutes, which yeah, is crazy. So and so if you're, if you're trying to be literal and say, what is Calvinism? That would actually be the institutes. And it's full of doctrine, full of theology, full of honestly, some really incredible thoughts. But with the modern day listener hears when they, when they hear Calvinism is this these five doctrines of grace, specifically as it relates to soteriology, which is the study of salvation, how we're saved. And it's five doctrines called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And to, the T is total depravity. The U is unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. And then the P is the perseverance of the saints, which we're going to talk about today and to give like just a really basic overview it's the idea that when it comes to salvation the the entire work and act and everything was completely on god and not on us and actually where this whole tulip thing came about was when the arminian church pushed back on this and said hey we, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in his election and predestination and work, but we also think there's this free will aspect to it, this human responsibility, this choice that also plays a part into that. And so then you had this huge division and debate between those two camps, and that's kind of kind of where we're at today. Great, thanks. And so when it comes to the perseverance of the saints— this is where we get the question, can I lose my salvation? And so obviously the two sides are, yes, you can lose it, or no, you can't. So the the no side would say, once saved, always saved. And so what, what kind of scripture do we have to back that side, the side that says, no, you cannot lose your salvation? Um, there's uh, the one that I go to a lot, um, because it's rooted in, uh, I always like to link everything to as much as what Jesus taught and, uh, in John 10, Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he goes into this, um, uh, kind of like parable way of teaching about how um, he's the shepherd, basically he's the good shepherd. So he's like pulling from the Psalms and this idea of what, um, God is like with his people. Uh, and in John 10, uh, he basically makes these statements as, um, Hey, the, I am the good shepherd. I will not lose any of my sheep. And he's contrasting the fact that the religious leaders of that day, and then for hundreds of years before who were supposed to be shepherding God's people were actually leading them astray, um, much of the time. And so he comes along and says, I actually am the good shepherd. Um, and he makes a statement like, when um, whoever uh, the father gives to me, as in these sheep that he gives to me, I will not lose one of them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, and so it paints this picture of God 
doing the work of giving somebody into the sheepfold to Jesus to, to have watch over and he will not let anyone take them and he will not let them be lost as in run away. Um, they are, they're completely secure from outer threats and their inner threat of the tendency to run away as sheep do. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a big staple out of the gospels is for yeah. one of them. And he says it again, Jesus in John six, a couple chapters earlier says, and this is the will of him who sent me. He basically is saying in context, telling the Pharisees, I, I've come to do the will of the father. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Kind of talking about this, this thread that everyone who looks on me and believes in me, they'll, they'll come to this glorification someday when I raise them up. Mm-hmm. on the last day. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul kind of hitting on that kind of same thread, as you will say, there's this thing called the golden thread or the unbreakable chain uh, of salvation in Romans 8, uh, about halfway through Romans 8. It's 38, 39. Oh, I was actually going, oh, I'll oh. let you get those. I'm okay. going a few verses earlier okay. um, where it talks about uh, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A lot of Calvinists will look to this and say, look, at this is an unbreakable chain. Every single person that God foreknew he predestined and every single person he predestined he called every single person he called he justified and every single person he justifies which means made righteous he's going to glorify and so they say look it there's an unbreakable chain nobody nobody that gets started in that chain like loses that chain or 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 kind of like slips away Mm, that's good yeah i was um I totally skipped over that. I was looking at verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8. So a few verses down uh, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that just makes me think of all of the passages that talk about grace and how it is by grace that we have been saved. And, you know, you can always go back to that uh, classic Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and um, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith passage. But, um, I mean, the the point of this is that, man, it's salvation is nothing on our part. It is fully from the Lord. So for us to think that, oh, well, you know, I was saved, but I, I started sinning, you know, I went through this, like, some are sin, you know, and so I think I might have just lost my salvation a little bit. Like, well, your salvation was never given to you because of anything you'd done in the first place. So why do you think anything you do now can take that away from you? Um, but yeah, so so the Romans passages are a really good thing to go to as well. Helpful in this. Yeah, I think whenever we talk about this um, idea and the question of like, can somebody lose their salvation? Um, there's a lot of different ways to interpret even just that question, but a lot of times I think people talk about it like 
oh, somebody might be able to lose their salvation. Like almost like you misplaced something, you know, like all of a sudden you look up and you're like, oh, I'm not saved anymore somehow. Um, and that's like not at all what even that word losing would entail. It's much more intentional nuanced than simply I've done something accidentally and then all of a sudden I'm not within salvation. And so it's, it's much more serious than that. And yeah, it relies much more on, well, how did you even come into the kingdom in the first place? You got to really wrestle with that. That's good. Um, so we've just kind of gone through a bunch of verses that talk about that, about security with salvation. And I think that's important to note because when it comes to a topic like this, um, this question that we're asking, it's important to survey all of scripture and see what it talks about. And because we can kind of stumble upon or have specific verses or passages pointed out to us that maybe don't make a lot of sense. And we, we tend to cling to those passages, right? Like when we're, we're thinking of, um, you know, a few episodes ago, women in ministry, we always go to the first Timothy passage or homosexuality. We'll go to either Ephesians or first Corinthians. And, and so we always like cling to some of these passages. And so today we're actually going to be looking at a passage in Hebrews, um, that people will kind of go to when it comes to the topic of whether or not you can lose your salvation. Um, but this is a a really tricky passage and we're going to try and break it down for, for y'all today. Um, but as we do that, remember one, we don't form doctrine based off of one passage. We look at all of scripture when we're doing that. Um, And we also don't form doctrine based on a passage that's confusing. (laughs) Um, So again, we have to look at the whole of scripture and what it's saying and take all of that into account rather than pulling one specific verse or one specific passage out of context and forming an entire doctrine on that. So just keep in mind the passages that we've already talked about today as we step into this Hebrews passage. And so as we get the context of Hebrews, what's, what's going on in this, this letter? First off, who wrote Hebrews? (gasps) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That was funny. I have a, uh, what's your hot take on who wrote Hebrews? No, I give me, give me your hot take. Bro. I have not studied this at all. Do you think it was Priscilla and Aquila? I think I think you just wanted Phoebe. to be Priscilla. <laughs> oh, Phoebe, my gal. No, I have a professor right now in um, at Dallas, and he is diehard that Paul wrote Hebrews, and he stated that wholeheartedly in class one day, not even taking into account that there could have been any other authors. I say, okay, boy, like, hey, you're standing on that hill. That's uh, a tough. That's a tough, tough hill to stand on. Uh-huh. Although the early church did attribute it to Paul, okay, which is is tough but i would say most scholars nowadays are like well this doesn't really line up with any of his other letters and so you could take into account that hebrews seems to be more of like a a sermon or proclamation than Mm -hmm. it would be would have been a written letter but the answer for you out there which is it's kind of inside joke is that nobody actually knows who wrote the book of hebrews but we do have a little bit of, of context to why it was written and who it was written to. So give us a little little context, Jacob, on who uh, who wrote or why this was written. Yeah, it's um, so Hebrews is a letter, and the primary f- um, focus of the letter, uh, the purpose for writing, is an encouragement 
to primarily Jewish believers. Um, so it's people who come from Jewish lineage, women practicing Judaism. They start following Jesus as the Messiah, and they are currently facing lots of persecution. Uh, it was probably written 80, 60, 70-ish, and um, if you know any early or first century history, everything's hitting the fan <laughs> around that time. Rome is just coming in on specifically the Jews, Temples getting destroyed, like it is chaos. They're like putting them on spikes on the wall and like impaling people. I mean, it is like horrific yeah. to be both a Jew and a Christian um, at the time. And so it's a broad letter to a very uh, a large swath of people, not even just in one like city, but rather kind of in this whole area of the world and this the Roman Empire for the most part. And it's an encouragement for them to continue following Jesus and to rely on um, both Jesus's supremacy to all things, which you'll read. There's tons of statements in Hebrews where it's like, Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the angels. angels. Yeah. It's like he is the sufficient one. And the reason that that's the theme of it is because they are facing like literally hell on earth and they need to rely on the fact that both Jesus is worth it, but he's also sufficient to provide what they need and then to also deliver, deliver them through death. Like even if they get martyred, um, Jesus is sufficient because they're going to be with him. And so it's very much a letter of encouragement in a really, really horrific time for these believers. Yeah, and a lot of them are facing this persecution and thinking to themselves, these Jewish Christians are saying, Back under the law, back when we were when we were in the temple, we didn't have this same type of persecution. What if we went back yeah. to, to these practices? What if we went back kind of towards Judaism? Man, life seemed easier back then. Let's start to go back there. And there's actually Jewish Christians that were kind of reverting back to their old ways. And so you'll see some of these kind of Amidst the encouragement, amidst this, hey, here's who Jesus is, there's these warning passages all throughout the book kind of saying, kind of warning them about going back. Like, hey, here's what you like, here's what you need to be aware of. And it's pretty, some of them are pretty harsh and pretty, pretty aggressive warning them, hey, don't go back to the old ways. Jesus is worth it. And so the passage we have today may be one of the most confusing passages in the Bible is is in Hebrews six, and it's one of these warning passages. Eileen, will you will you read that passage? Yeah. So I'm reading Hebrews six verses six through eight. Sounds good. Great. Um, wait, was that what I was supposed to be reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four, four, four. Uh, Y'all weren't even going to correct me. I wasn't paying attention, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I was like, yeah, whatever. You, you're usually on top of the details here, so I'm, I'll trust you. Okay, four through six. Here we go. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Shoot. Okay, so remember, we're going to read it again. Remember, we're thinking about under the lens, the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? And we have just kind of given the 
hey, once a Christian, always a Christian side. But this, for those who would say, yes, you can, this is probably the main passage that they they go to. So the question you need to ask is, what's going on here? Is this person an actual Christian that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? And so read it one more time and think about it through that lens. Yeah. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Great job reading, by the way. Thank you so much. Did solid. I redeem myself from the past episodes? Mm-hmm. You can read again. Thanks, guys. Wow. I feel really so special. what's go- what's going on here? What who is he talking about? What what is this passage saying? Yeah, that's um so again, remember he's writing to these Jewish believers. Um, and they are Jewish believers. The context is amidst all this persecution and suffering. There are some who have reverted back to Judaism and the practices of obtaining right, right standing before God through following the law, various forms of that. And there's a temptation for them to do that. Um, and so he's, he's writing to them. And in this section, he specifically shifts to those who have done these things. And so right before this, and if you start at the beginning of chapter six, he, he tells them, these believers, hey, um, let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. And he gives us a list of what does it look like to be maturing in faith? He's calling the believers to do so. And then he links what we just read with that. So basically, hey, if, if we don't do this, then falling into um, where he starts in verse four, um, it becoming impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have understood the gospel, who have tasted, they've experienced, they've consumed the gift of salvation. They've, they've participated, X, Y, Z, all these things. Um, if we don't mature in Christ, then some have fallen into that and have reverted old, most likely back to Judaism. If that's the case, well, the people following Judaism is looking at Jesus as a blasphemer. They're the, they're the ones crucify him, crucify mm-hmm. him. And so in their living back into Judaism, they would be crucifying him once again, like he says in verse six, they would be putting him up to open shame. And for anyone who is doing that, you cannot restore them back into repentance. Um, repentance is somebody that there's something that somebody has to do. That can't happen if, if that is the way that they are living. And then after he finishes that section, he transitions back into, um, well, he gives a little um, analogy at the, at the end of it about some like rain and thistles and stuff. But then he goes back in verse nine and says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, these brothers, these Christians, we feel sure about better things, things that belong to salvation. And so do you see the shift in um, the audience that he's talking to? Mm-hmm. He's talking, he's addressing us and them as believers, giving a warning about, hey, if anybody falls into this, they, they cannot repent as long as they're living like this. Not necessarily that if they stop living like that, that they then can repent. That's not what that's saying. It's just saying if you're living like this, like some have, 
you cannot you cannot repent of that apostasy, if you will, which is just turning away from God. And then he comes back to addressing them as, but that's not us. You have been persevering. Um, let us call into remembrance the better things that involve salvation. And so it's a really, it's kind of like a victory statement at the end of like, hey, this is still worth it. Um, yeah, and there's so, these people that are are turning away, going back to their old lives, back to the law, back to their old ways. But you, I'm convinced of 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 better things. Mm-hmm. Like you have have been steadfast. You have persevered and continue in these things. Don't go back. Yeah. Like, so that's good. Yeah. Gosh, even in your, you know, next Saturday afternoon, go read Leviticus and then go read Hebrews. The rest of Hebrews goes off on how Jesus is like the the high priest and the the ultimate mediator between man and God. And if you read the beginning of Leviticus through like Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about the day of atonement, um, God is setting up standards and um, just uh, ritual ceremonies and sacrifices that he wants his people to practice to be holy. And so what these Jews are doing here that um, the author is speaking to is they're reverting back to those ways. They're um, going back to those practices of sacrifices and things like that, that, um, you know, once a year they have this day of atonement where they would um, atone, have their sins atoned for um, throughout the whole year. And, and the author of Hebrews is coming in and saying, Hey, what are you doing? Like, you once were a people that had to do that um, on a yearly basis and have your sins atoned for, but Jesus came and once and for all, he is that that ultimate sacrifice. Because he came and did that, you no longer have to have to be doing these things. And that is just such a um, an incredible way that this author has woven what they would have known, what they would have been practicing into their new life in Christ. Yeah, that's really good. And so he gives this illustration right after this passage about the one who has been enlightened, the one who has shared in the Holy Spirit, has tasted the the powers of the age to come, the goodness of the word of God, and then has fallen away. It says it's impossible for them to again be restored to repentance because they're crucifying once again Christ. They're, they're subjecting him to open shame again. And then he gives this illustration of the land. This is in verse seven. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is showing exactly what Jacob was talking about. These two different people, like these two different camps, the one who looked at Jesus and then said, when persecution came, all these things came like, oh, we're going to go back to this, this easier life. And the, the ones that have, have persevered through it. And it's exactly what Jesus says. He's, he actually has a couple of incredible parables about the one that comes to mind is the good soil mm-hmm. that all these different types of, of soil had the, the word of God planted and produced something at first. Some of, some of it looked good, and then when when persecution came or when Satan came, they kind of fell away. One produced thorns. I think that imagery is there again. One withered when it got hot, but the good soil persevered, persevered through all of that and produced 
this fruit, produced this crop. And so he, he's pointing again to these these two different types of, of people uh, in, in this passage, the ones that are going to continue to remain faithful to Jesus amidst that persecution and, and the ones to whom uh, are going to go back to Judaism or to their old ways. I think the question still remains, the ones who went back to Judaism, were they ever Christians or not? I think you can extend that question into our day and age too when we think of people who are so involved in the church. I mean, even like I hear stories of people whose youth pastors and who had such a significant impact on their life have walked away from the faith. Some even um, are just very hostile towards it. Well, like my story, I think I've shared it on here before. My best friend, literally the best man in mine and Lauren's wedding, looked up to him. He's a few years older than me. We did K life together. He like, we did youth ministry together. I basically just tried to do whatever he did. And a huge part of my testimony is based on, on him and his faithfulness. I saw fruit in his life. I saw fruit in his leaders lives and the, and the kids that he poured into and through some life circumstances some really hard things. He completely walked away. He completely uh, rejected Christianity is now hostile towards Christianity and is living a life that's in complete contrast to it. And so again, it brings up that question was, was he ever actually a Christian or not? I mean, looking at these passages today, I would say he wasn't a Christian, you know, I mean, maybe it looks like it, but then you go back to, well, you know, you can see things in people's lives and, and you can have your assumptions, but truly God is the one that knows the heart. Um, so when it comes to circumstances like that, um, because I, I firmly see in scripture that you cannot lose your salvation, then I would say, well, people like that, then they never knew the Lord. Yeah, and First uh, John, John really likes sitting on this topic. Um, John loves this topic. For, yeah, First John. You think John was the first Calvinist? Oh. Do you think John wrote Hebrews? Is John, <laughs> wait, is this John Calvin? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, yeah, so in First John 2, um, he writes, uh, referring to people who have been a part of the body of believers in the area, but then who have left. They're no longer believers. They do not follow Jesus. Um, he says, they went out from us, i.e. the believers, um, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And what John is doing, he's hitting on a truth that Jesus taught regularly, that to figure out where somebody stands, you have to judge what he would call the fruit of their life. A good tree is going to produce good fruit, or a healthy tree will produce fruit and healthy fruit. A bad tree will produce either sick fruit or no fruit at all. Um, a thorn bush is going to produce thorns and not fruit. The way that people live, especially over the long term, is the fruit that gives us clues as to, hey, where do you actually stand? And because of the parable of the soils, the good soil, Josh, that you referenced, we know that there will be people who will show real fruit. It could be for a really long time, but eventually they weather away. 
And there's experiential cases where those same people end up coming back. I know somebody right off the top of my head, very similar situation, was involved with ministry for a long time, led tons of people to Christ, incredible, for like 12 years, just off the grid, like no God, nothing. And he eventually came into repentance and has come back to the faith since then. And so we know that, hey, it's based on the fruit. John pretty plainly says like, hey, you know, they're going out. I'm sure John probably would have, if they had come back and repented, he would have been like, welcome. <laughs> you know, like you were a part of the believers. But as long as you are going out from Jesus and you're rejecting him, that fruit of your life would prove, no, you are not following Jesus. And I think that's how, that can be hard for us to think about because we can really easily get caught up on the idea of like, the worry about, okay, well, in the future, what if I do something that then makes me lose my salvation? Or like, what if I don't persevere? For the people that John's writing to and Jesus is speaking with, their only thought is, am I following Jesus today? Mm-hmm. Which is very grounding because if you're wrestling with that and you're, you're man, I don't, I don't know the insurance of my salvation. Are you following Jesus today? Yeah. Okay. You're good. Keep following Keep Jesus. Up. Yeah. The writer of yeah. Hebrews would say, Keep okay. following. Keep yeah, following. we have something good for you. Keep yeah, going. Yeah, keep following. Don't walk away. And then for those who walk away, come back. Repent. Come back into repentance. And then if you don't, then it's like, ah, you know, you have proved that you are not in the kingdom. Yeah. I actually think this question and this passage and this topic brings up a real flaw in kind of our Western Christian society. We have made the entire emphasis of the gospel on what we would call, or theologians would call, penal substitutionary atonement, which is completely true and so vital, which basically what that means is, if you've heard the gospel shared, anything like this where it's, hey, you're a sinner, the wages of sin is is death, you deserve death because of your sin, Jesus became sin on your behalf so that you could have his righteousness, he paid this debt for you, which is completely true, it's completely vital. It's so necessary, but that's only one piece of the gospel. And so we've kind of used this. This was Eileen's word as fire insurance. Like, okay, I, Jesus paid my debt, so I'm good. I can do whatever I want now. Yet the gospel is so much better than that and so much bigger than that. A huge part of the gospel is that not only is Jesus the, like, did Jesus pay our debt, but he's also the victor over over sin and death. He's also the the one that gives us freedom. And what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. He's your new king. He's your new Lord. And so to be a Christian and say, today, I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to be, as John Mark Comer would say, <laughs> an apprentice of Jesus. And when, when we ask this question, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? It's revealing in us this idea that we, that we have boiled down Christianity to this, okay, my debt's paid so I can live how I want. I can do what I want. I can still do, live the American comfortable dream. And as long as I prayed that prayer that one time, I'm good. Is that, is that mm. fair to say? Oh, Josh, yes, I am with you in that. I think something that absolutely breaks my heart is when, man, and I've, I've heard this within um, just people that are really close to me, um, you know, they'll be talking about someone who is not following Jesus, um, 
you know, kind of live in their own way. And um, sometimes like a person will not even claim to be a Christian, but then the person who really cares about them, who's talking about this person will say, yeah, but, but I was with them when they prayed the prayer when they were seven. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So th- y'all, this is what my book would be about. Um, if we're looking at the scripture that talks about how you will know them by their fruits, I mean, there's zero fruit. If there's zero fruit in someone's life, if they're not even claiming Christianity, I'm sorry, that person doesn't know Jesus. And I think, Josh, what you were saying when it comes to asking the wrong question, man, our Western culture has just, again, so many layers of just culture and tradition. And, and tradition is great in, in a lot of ways. But if we miss the core of the gospel and we teach people to focus on fire insurance, right? I stole that. Thank you for giving me credit, but I've totally I've heard it called get out of hell free card. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like if our main goal with Christianity is, oh, I just, I want to go to heaven when I die. Like, oh yeah, Jesus is the means through that. So like I'll pray a prayer, you know, and then I'll go to heaven. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, is Jesus. Jesus should be our end goal. It should be knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and living like Jesus and spending time with Jesus. And with that comes an eternity with Jesus. Like, I, I'm sorry, but if if someone doesn't want to spend time with Jesus here in this life, why do you want to spend time with him forever in eternity? Like, that's just something to think about because that's something that I think we as a church have um, shifted our focus a little bit in this, you know, out of a good heart of, oh, we want people to know the Lord. So we really push like pray the prayer and, and, um, you know, trust in Jesus and repent of your sins. And it's like, yes, absolutely. But don't do that because you want to get out of jail free card. Don't do that because you think there's a bad place that you're going to go when you die. If you don't, because that's not true. I mean, that's not a genuine heart of loving Jesus. So if that means pausing and spending time to actually consider what you're making a commitment to, do that. And step away from this this pushy prayer prayer type thing and then leave them. Spend time with people if you're sharing the gospel with them. Make sure they know who Jesus is. Make sure you know who Jesus is. Go read the gospel of John and man, just don't come to it with expectations of, okay, what's the Lord going to teach me today? Or what do I take away from this so I can write down in my journal? But literally just come to the book of John and say, Jesus, who are you? And read it with that. Just, just, man, mindset is powerful. Mm. And so if you're asking the question, can I lose my salvation? That's where we want you to go. Instead of saying, once a Christian, always a Christian, can I lose my salvation? We're just encouraging you today, ask yourself the question instead, do I know Jesus? Do I love him? And do I want to follow him? And if the answer is yes, keep going. Keep being faithful no matter what happens, even if you're persecuted, even if you could die for following Jesus, he is worth it. And if you're someone who has follow Jesus, um, or was even brought up in the church, but then has rejected that, uh, just know that there is an open door, uh, for you to, to follow Jesus again. Um, you're not excluded. In fact, Jesus wants you to follow him. Um, he wants you to have that abundant life, uh, to bring. Uh, and so, yeah, keep following 
and also come and follow. Yes. And so our, our whole jobs, the reason we were in ministry is to help people see Jesus for who he really is and to help them follow, help, help you follow him every day. And so we love you till next week. Grace, Grace and, and peace. peace.